0: Well, if you've been around Capshaw very long, you know that our custom here is to kind of work our way through uh, books of the Bible, one book at a time, so we'll go through a book over a series of Sundays, and then we'll pick up another book when we're done, and uh, it's called Expositional Preaching. We we go through sections at a time. Now, sometimes if we're in uh, narratives, Old Testament narratives, we'll go through larger portions, but... When we get into the New Testament, some of the letters in particular will slow down and even go verse by verse, and there are a lot of reasons that we do that, a lot of reasons for that, but one of the main reasons is if we're really going to understand what God has said to us, just like any letter or poem or book or film, you can't just pick a phrase out of the middle of it. You have to understand how it fits in the bigger story. And so what this approach really helps us to do is to draw the meaning out of the text, rather than put our own meaning into the text. So if you just pick a subject and say, we're going to talk about this subject and we get a bunch of scriptures, and it is easy to, to, to rip those scriptures, to cherry pick them out of context and kind of make them say what we want. We don't want to do that. We realize that if we're putting our meaning into the text, then what we get to hear is what we have to say, which is really not much. It's not very helpful. Uh, but if we draw the meaning out of the text rightly understanding and interpreting the Scriptures, we get to hear what God has to say. And we know that what God has to say is authoritative and powerful and inerrant and beneficial for us in every aspect of our life and relationships. So, so that's what we do. We preach through the Bible again section uh, by section. It, to that end, next week, we're going to start a new expositional series through 1 John called As Children of God. And we're going to look at what does it mean to live as children of God in a world that, of course, this is we're talking about 2,000 years ago, but not much has changed, in a world that very much despises absolute truth. What does it mean to live as the children of God? Now, sometimes, if you if you read the church email, I wrote a little a little promo blurb on this. Sometimes, you know, if someone says you're acting, most of the time, someone says you're acting like a child, that's a very bad thing, isn't it? It means you're you're throwing a tantrum or you're having a very me-centered approach or you're lying or blame-shifting or whatever. And yet, nine times in the Gospel of or John's first letter, he, he says, as children, he addresses his audience as children. So we'll look at what that means over the upcoming weeks and months. But, but we're in between series, as Pastor Adam mentioned. We spent 11 weeks in the Kings looking at Elijah and Elijah and how they point us to Christ. And then next week, we're we'll going to begin 1 John. So I thought, since we're in between series... I'm actually hearing a lot, and I'm sure you are as well, not just social media, but I'm hearing so much about the recent decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. I'm hearing confusion. I'm hearing anger. Uh, I'm I'm hearing uh, conflict between a variety of perspectives. And so I thought what we would do this morning is we would look at the sacredness of human life and and what, the, what God actually says about this. Now, a disclaimer, I guess, is necessary. I'm not going to answer, I'm not going to address every sort of variable that could come up, obviously, in, in 35 minutes. Um, I'm not going to answer every question that you might have, uh, for sure. But what I do want to do is, is pr- try to provide a biblical foundation, a biblical framework for how we ought to consider this. Because I'm sure that you've seen it, like I have, and maybe you've experienced it, This decision and the conversations that have ensued um, have really separated even friends, separated family members. There's so much, uh, I hear, even among Christians, I hear people saying that they're weeping over this decision. I hear Christians say that they're afraid now, they're scared. Uh, I hear Christians say that they're angry. I'm not surprised by the response of non-Christians, even the, the, the sometimes violent response. But I have been, to be candid with you, I have been surprised by uh, the the response of Christians. So, again, we're not going to answer any questions, all the questions. Hopefully we'll answer some questions. um, But we're not going to answer all the questions. But I do hope to provide a bit of a a biblical framework. Um, What does it mean? What does God say about the sacredness of human life? And what's the big deal, right? I mean, what is the big deal? Why is this issue separating so many uh, people. So let's begin. We, we don't normally, if you're new, we don't normally hop around a lot in, in the scriptures. We normally kind of stick with the text, but uh, the text at hand, but we are going to look at a couple of different passages. So Genesis 1, if you're there, just turn right to the very beginning um, of your Bible. And let me begin by reading verses 26 through 27. Then we'll jump over to chapter 3 and read the first six verses. So here is the word of the Lord. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So flipping over to chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and then look, look at this next phrase, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So these are the first of course, human beings ever created, sometimes referred to by by theologians as our first parents, and they are in this beautiful, untainted garden. And the serpent, whom Revelation twelve tells us that this is the evil one, this is the devil, also known as Satan. The serpent uh, slithers up to Eve, or creeps up to Eve, as it were, and offers this this tempting uh, uh, position here. He says that if you eat of the forbidden tree, you will be like God. Now the great irony in that is Adam and Eve were already like God, at least in a sense, in that as we just read, they were created in the image of God. So they, were, they already were image bearers of God. In fact, we just read, the Lord says, let us make man in our image, Genesis 1:26. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, if you go back through history, you survey the last couple millennia, you see there are all kinds of interpretations as to what it means to be an image bearer of God. What does it mean to say that mankind bears the image of God? The problem is no one knows exactly what it means or what it fully entails. Does it mean that we, that we look like God? Does it mean that, uh, that God looks like us? Is God sort of the most beautiful Expression of humankind. So think about uh, the most beautiful person you know. uh, And if it's not your spouse, don't reveal that. But think about the most beautiful person. Is that what God looks like? The most beautiful person that we can think of? Um, Well, we know that's not the case because the scriptures tell us that God doesn't have a body, God is a spirit. Um, But the text is clear. We bear his likeness. Now, again, What does that mean? Well, various explanations have been given uh, again over the centuries. Going back to the second century, Irenaeus said that it means that we are relational. Spiritual beings, and, and certainly this is an aspect, and that was kind of the, the dominant understanding for about a thousand, more than a thousand years after that. In the 16th century, the Socinians came along, and they said what it really means is they, they emphasized the dominion aspect, and so they said that to be an image bearer of God means to have dominion over the created world, and so we are to fill it out into in, in all the endless possibilities, and certainly that's an aspect of it. Um, Calvin came along and, and presented uh, a different view, and then Martin Luther had a different view. His view was um, more of the again uh, focusing on the relational aspect of it. And then after that, you had Karl Barth, who you know had some really great things to say, and some things we really don't want to listen to as it relates to the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. But Karl Barth came along and said, really, it's about uh, he he had the, what was called the sexuality uh, perspective that it's. Being an image bearer of God refers to the, the complementary nature of, of the genders and so on. And as I said, no one, no one has the definitive view, and certainly it, it, there's a variety. I mean, or let me say it this way, there's a, there's a wide range of meaning as it, as it relates to the, the image of God. But we have to say this one thing is unmistakable. Unlike everything else that God made, unlike anything else that God made, human beings alone... They reflect the image of God in some way. So, so planets don't bear the image of God. Plants don't. Animals don't. Insects don't. Um, uh, CGI and virtual reality avatars don't. They don't bear the image of God. When God made the world and placed Adam and Eve in the garden, he said, really, in a thousand ways, you know, and by, by virtue of his responsibilities, you are different. You are unlike anything else that I've created. And then he says expressly and explicitly that they are made in the image of God. They are created in our image, God says. So again, nothing else in all creation bears the image of God. And because of that, God has a unique love for and concern for human beings. In fact, the whole witness of the Scriptures is that God cares deeply about those who bear His image. Now, let me say it even a little more strongly. God does not tolerate the abuse of those who bear His image. Let me show you from Genesis chapter 9. You can flip over there if you want. The verses will appear behind me. Genesis 9, 5, and 6. And from each man too, I I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God, God has made man. So the word for there is called a causal conjunction. What it does is it it gives a reason for or an explanation for a certain action. So the reason that, that, that death is a consequence for the shedding of innocent blood is because man is an image-bearer of God. So to take innocent life is to destroy the image of God, and this actually angers God greatly. Yes, God gets angry. Yes, God gets furious. Now it's a holy anger, It's, it's a righteous fury, but nonetheless it's real. God has placed his image in his world. God has placed his image in his cosmic sanctuary, so to speak, and he demands that proper respect and honor be given to that image. Now, he's placed his image in His world, in this world by way of humanity, by way of humankind. And again, he insists that respect and honor be given. So we're going to build an argument here from the Scripture. Here's our first point. God is fiercely concerned, and I I say that intentionally, for those who bear His image, that they are honored, protected, and defended. God is fiercely concerned about those who bear His image. So every image bearer of the invisible God is inherently deserving of what even our forefathers would say inalienable rights So it doesn't matter what age you are, what IQ, what nationality, race, color, gender, uh, what your background is, your family lineage, or even how messed up a person may be morally, every image bearer of God is of unimaginable worth, and the one who fails to recognize that worth is committing a sacrilege, a serious crime against God. God's very concerned about those who bear His image. Several years ago, I was having dinner with the, the chief administrator of one of the largest uh, schools in the country. And this is just outside of Chicago. We were, it was a beautiful dinner. We had a great conversation. And things were going really smoothly, and we were in complete agreement until he told me this story about there, there was a real pervasive bullying going on at his school in the lower grades, so in the fourth through the sixth grades. And he said it was particularly bad on the buses. And so what was happening, he shared this with me, what was happening was on the bus ride home from school or to school, There were kids who were getting pinned down in the back of the bus and just being, you know, punched and walloped and beaten by the other kids, uh, by some other kids. And sometimes, you know, because it was shielded from the bus driver and and any adults, it just was going on. as becoming a very uh, bad problem. And so this administrator was telling me, what we tell our kids is, we tell them, hey, you know, yell out for the bus driver. Yell out for an adult. You know, yell as loud as you can to get help. And if you can't get help, just put your hands over your face and your your head and just endure it until you get to your destination. I said, that's terrible advice. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, yeah, I would say the first thing is, yeah, yell out for an adult, yell for the bus driver, try to get help. But if you can't get help, I would tell the kid being beaten, stand up and punch the kid in the nose. This guy couldn't believe it. He was scandalized by that. And he said, well, what Jesus said, turn the other cheek. I said, yeah, Jesus said that in Matthew 6. But this is about suffering. This is about the, being persecuted because of your faith or through, through the expansion of the gospel. It's about not retaliating or seeking vengeance against those who persecute you because of your faith. This is not telling little kids, fourth graders in a bus, just sit there and be punished and be punched. After all, I said, and this was my, my clinching argument, oh, he didn't buy it. after all, those kids are image bearers of God. and God is deeply concerned about those who bear His image. Now you may totally disagree with the counsel I gave and that that's fine and I'm, that's totally fine, but, 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 but you can't disagree with the fact that God is very concerned, very concerned, fiercely concerned about those who bear His image. To bear God's image means to be inherently deserving of Of honor, respect, care, dignity, and protection. Now, of course, that doesn't solve the issue, does it? Because that does beg a question when does a person become an image bearer of God? Does this happen at birth? Uh, Does this happen sometime after birth? Uh, does this happen you know, before birth? When does it happen? When does a, does a human being begin to bear God's image and therefore lay claim to these rights of honor, protection, and care? Let me frame it a different way because this is probably what you're hearing if you're in discussions or reading. The real issue is when does personhood begin? So, when it comes to abortion and the right to abortion, and by the way, this is not a political message, this is a theological message. When it comes to these things, the issue boils down to a question of personhood. Um, To be classified as a person entails having strong legal rights and moral rights and protections and and a higher moral status than, than other living things that aren't classified as persons. So the issue is when does a human being become a person? When does personhood begin? Um, There are three views on this, uh, I mean, predominantly. The first view holds that personhood begins the moment of conception. Those who hold this view say from the very moment of conception, there is a person inside the womb who has all the moral and legal rights pertaining to personhood. Care, dignity, protection, honor, and so on. So the first view personhood begins at conception. The second view holds that personhood arises at some point after conception and before birth. So at some point between conception and delivery, we might say, um, and there are a lot of different views as to when specifically personhood is conferred on that uh, human, right? Some say it's when the child's heart beats. Uh, some say it's when... There's an obvious sense of self-awareness, although it's kind of impossible to to diagnose. Some say when when there's clear cognitive ability, that's when personhood begins. Now, a third view says that personhood is established at birth or shortly thereafter. Because this, it is argued, is when an infant first demonstrates an interest in their own continued existence. Now... It makes sense why those who hold the second and third views are in favor of abortion because in their estimation, what's in a woman's body is not yet a person and therefore not deserving of the right to care, dignity, protection, and even life. So what is the right answer? What is the right approach? When does personhood begin? This is a huge question, huge question. Uh, And in the words of attorney and ethicist William Saunders of the Family Research Council, Answering this question makes for the single most important ethical issue that we as Christians will face this century. And that's saying a lot, isn't it? The issue of personhood. When does personhood begin? Or as I said it earlier, when does a human being become or begin to reflect or begin to bear the image of God? Now let me give you the answer and and then I'll defend it. Here's our second point. Every human being bears the image of God at conception, which is the point at which personhood begins. Now, if you say, what Bible verse says personhood begins at conception? There's no Bible verse that says that explicitly. Uh, and there are a lot, as you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of very, very important subject matters, uh, even some truths that we order our lives around that don't have a proof text, so to speak, uh, that you can go to, but there's plenty of biblical evidence, and there's plenty of biblical evidence that this is the case, that every human being bears the image of God at conception, which is the point at which personhood begins. So I said I would give you the, the, uh, the argument, and then, and then I would make it and explain it. So let me give you, let me give you three reasons uh, why we believe and are persuaded that personhood begins at conception. Here's the first one. God recognizes and loves humans as persons in the womb. So, God recognizes and loves humans as persons in the womb. In Psalm 139, we have uh, what some have called the, the first ever divinely inspired ultrasound. And in verse 16, David says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. That's the way the ESV reads it. Now, that word, it's a single word in the Hebrew, unformed substance, is the Hebrew word golim. And it's, it's, that's the way it's translated, my unformed uh, substance. This is the only time in the Bible this word appears, this Hebrew word appears in this way. And it refers to the human embryo, the unshaped mass that has yet to take, we might say bodily form, but is in every way a living person acknowledged by God and loved by God. Uh, Dr. John Jefferson Davis, a noted uh, evangelical ethicist, says this, The point to be noted here is that during the earliest stages of human life, when the embryo does not even look human, vulnerable human life is seen by God and is the object of divine awareness and concern. Now, to be seen by God, in the Old Testament sort of metaphor, means more than just to be noticed, more than just even to be observed, it means to be cared for. It means to be watched over. It means to be concerned about. God loves preborn children and regards them in every way as persons. As I mentioned, some people want to make personhood about cognitive ability. In other words, they say, well, a preborn child can't uh, be a person because it can't do anything, it can't contribute to society, it can't think or whatever. Well, what would you guess is the major uh, problem with that? Well, what about people who have severe disabilities and they lose their ability to think clearly? Will we say that they're not persons deserving of life? What about people who who get to such an advanced age that they can barely move? They're not. They don't offer anything to anybody. They're they're they're, they're hobbled. They're they're you know they lack mobility. They can't even speak. Are they no longer persons, no longer deserving of life? Uh, This mindset that personhood requires a certain level of uh, cognitive ability or societal contribution um, has been used to demean and harm people of all different ages and backgrounds and abilities uh, really for centuries. I mean, think about Nazi Germany in the 1940s. In the southwest region of Germany, there's there's a little town... Um, called Mönchberg, or translated Monk's Mountain. And on the top of that hill, there's an old Franciscan monastery, which has been around for a long time. Well, hundreds of years, really. Well, in 1940, that monastery was turned into one of the the infamous Nazi killing centers. There were six of these. And they were spread throughout Germany, where children and later adults with so-called disabilities were systematically starved to death, gassed, or cremated. Now some of these quote disabilities included blindness, deafness, any sort of malformation of the arms or legs, uh, microcephaly, hydrocephaly, anything def- decide, defined as uh, quote idiocy, mongolism, or a spastic condition. Just think about this. How Egregious and evil, this is. Folks with any sort of struggles, any apparent struggle, either cognitive or physical, were deemed to be not persons and so killed. I mean, do you, do you see how not just arbitrary but evil this is? To define personhood based on a purported ability to contribute to society. We could easily say, then you could get into the sort of ranking system. Well, this person contributes way more than this person, so this person no longer deserves to live. You see uh, how horrific it is. So the first argument there that I just made, letter A, is that God recognizes and loves humans as persons in the womb. And the second one, which I think is so beautiful and I think equally persuasive, is this, letter B. Jesus took on human personhood at conception. John 1 tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Have you ever wondered at what point did the Word become flesh? Was it simply at birth or was it at some other point? When did Jesus become the person of the Messiah. Was it at conception, birth, at some other point? The answer is actually revealed in Luke 1. So you have Mary and Elizabeth, you know, they're cousins related, troubled by the announcement that she will give birth to a son since she's a virgin. Mary, she's, you know, doesn't know what to make of this. She takes a trip to see her relative Elizabeth, who's also pregnant. And when Mary walks in the door to see Elizabeth, Luke tells us in Luke one forty one, the baby leaped in her womb. The embryo, the the Greek word there is brephos, it's the word embryo, the embryo in Mary's womb was already able by the Spirit's power to recognize the person of the Messiah before he was even born. So when John 1 tells us that Jesus, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that goes all the way to the very point of conception. Uh, Old Testament scholar David Atkinson says, the Word became flesh, so to speak, right down to the level of our genes. This confers on the embryo sacred and inviolable status. So Jesus, the Christ, took on human personhood at conception. And here's the final reason we conclude that personhood begins at conception. This is one that even secular uh, uh, geneticists agree on for the most part. Human beings enjoy a continuity of personal identity from the moment they are conceived. You say, what in the world does that mean? And what does that have to do with the Bible? Well, from his humble beginnings as a zygote, which is just a a fertilized egg, developing into the embryonic stage and then the fetal stage, all the way through adolescence and adulthood, man is involved in an uninterrupted process of maturation. So at fertilization, a unique genome is made and a person is created. A person is created at conception within the zygote is an already f- fully programmed individual from sex and aging to eye color and even get this even an aversion to certain tastes and smells so from so if you don't like if you're a kid in here and you don't like broccoli you can say hey that's the way i was programmed so I'm not going to eat my broccoli anymore. No, don't say that and don't tell them your pastor said that. But it is true that even from the point of conception, there are certain aspects that, that they are already programmed in us as persons. Um, it's all there. So what happens is, what do I mean by this continuity of personal identity, it, it just develops over time. So, so for an example, even though a person naturally looks drastically different at 90, for example, 90 years of age, than he did, you know, while an embryo, naturally, right? He remains the same person in essence at every stage. His DNA was established when he was conceived and it hasn't changed. There's been no break in the process, the continual process of maturation. He is, in other words, he is precisely the same person that he was at conception. He just is growing older, which is inevitable, so any sort of assignment of personhood between conception and death is purely arbitrary and cannot be accepted so the point that i 'm making here, and by the way i I had time to work on a master 's degree in systematic theology and bioethics and and this is an area that i 'm really excited about and passionate about and but I think it's you know it, you don 't have to be uh, Right, A Neanderthal, you don't have to be a caveman to, to actually believe and embrace and insist that personhood begins at conception. So the point that I'm making, again, personhood begins at conception. We have plenty of biblical, biological, genetical evidence for this. And at the moment of conception, which, which what exists is a person that has all the rights that go along with personhood. So then the question then becomes, and this is maybe an argument that you've been embroiled in or something you've heard, well, what about women carrying these babies? Shouldn't they be able to decide whether they want to have this baby? Isn't it unloving, I've heard, to insist that a woman has a child that she didn't intend on having, or in some cases, doesn't even want? And the answer to that is, forgive me if this sounds callous. But the answer to that is, is there ever a time when it's okay to end a person's life because someone else doesn't want them around? I don't think so, do you? Is there ever a time when it is okay to end a person's life because someone else fears that, they, that he or she may get in the way or they can't provide for them? So, And I, I realize this is, a, this is a very difficult thing, and, I'm, and I don't want to... You know, diminish or demean the seriousness of it or, or, the, or just how difficult these things are. But I think it's very clear. God cares about and demands the protection of every person regardless of age, ability, race, skill, education, gender, or any other variable. And that brings me to my next point. As image bearers of God themselves, God cares deeply about women. So you may hear the argument And I'm sure you've read it somewhere if you've looked into this, that, you know, it's it's better for a woman not to suffer through, not to have a child she doesn't want or whatever, but that's completely fictitious. The data does not bear that out. cherishing human life also means championing what's best for women. And despite the angry rhetoric that denies the harm suffered by women who undergo abortions, medical evidence, theological arguments... Uh, sociological data, and the personal testimonies of many, many women tell a very different story, and that is that abortion harms women physically, psychologically, relationally, and spiritually. For example, studies show that women who have had abortions are 30% more likely to suffer from anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts. On the medical side, women who have had abortions are at greater risk for breast, cervical, ovarian, and liver cancer. Because God cares about those who bear his image, God cares deeply about women. And those same women are deserving of protection and love and honor and care. God cares about preborn children. He cares about fathers and mothers. He cares about men and women. And so should we. And that brings us to. Our final point, as those created by God for His glory and to do His will, God's fierce concerns must be our fierce concerns. So one of the ways that we glorify God and one of the ways that we stand out as salt and light in the world is by loving what God loves, by caring about what God cares about. And we do this as a church, I think, very well, and I'm grateful for it. Uh, we invest our time, our energy, our finances in partnering with and caring for the preborn, uh, protecting children of all ages, even the ones whose birthdays we have yet to celebrate. This is why we're collecting diapers. This is why we send uh, men and women down to two different uh, pregnancy resource centers to provide counseling and care and encouragement. Uh, this is why we, we, we champion the rights of the preborn. This is why I, I've written multiple articles on this sort of thing. And I've gotten grateful and hateful responses. I've gotten people who are thankful. And I've gotten very, very angry responses. And when this sermon is posted, I'll probably get very angry responses. Um, But we have to care about and love and stand for what God cares about and loves and stand for. And you may say, you know what, this is just too difficult for me. I'm not going to make a decision on all that. If you say that, you have made a decision already. So we're concerned about these things because God cares about these things. God is fiercely concerned about those who bear his image. But God's fierce concerns are broad, aren't they? One of his fierce concerns is that every person everywhere is invited to receive his forgiveness in Christ regardless of the sins they've committed. One of God's fierce concerns is that the gospel message of restoration and forgiveness is preached everywhere to everyone so that those who are separated from God, so that those who stand condemned by God because of their sin, any sin, can be forgiven by repenting and trusting Jesus In His cross word. On the cross, Jesus took on Himself every sin for those who believe. The sin of self-righteousness. The sin of judgmentalism. The sin of pride. The sin of lust. The sin of pornography. The sin of abortion. Every sin was laid on Christ so that those who trust in Him, regardless of what sins they've committed... Could be cleansed and made new. It's a dark world we live in, isn't it? Filled with hopelessness and loneliness and despair. There are so many expecting uh, moms and, and, and dads alongside them who have no idea what to do or where to turn for help. So many moms who realize they're pregnant and they don't, they don't have anybody to cry out to, anybody to go to for help. And in their hopelessness, they end up aborting the child they've conceived. They need to know that in Christ there is complete and total forgiveness. They need to know that if they turn in repentant faith to Jesus, he will immediately and completely forgive them. And he will never hold that sin or any other sin against them. They need to know that if they have trusted in Christ, that God will never again hold their sin against them. God's forgiveness is fully and forever theirs. So what does it mean to to share God's fierce concerns? Well, it certainly means standing up for the sacredness of human life, all life. And we're doing that here, and I praise God for that. It also means announcing the good news that there is no sin that God's grace is not sufficient to cover. There is no offense that our holy God will not instantly and forever forgive For those who trust in him. The woman who commits abortion needs to know that. In Christ she needs to know. In Christ she is a daughter of the most high king. And God sees her as beautiful. And loved. And forgiven. Same with the abortion doctor. Who turns away from his horrid practice to follow Christ. If he trusts in Christ. He needs to know. All that you've done. Is forgiven. And so let me just make it even more personal. And say this. If you're here this morning and you're a woman and you've had an abortion, if you put your faith in Christ, God loves you and he cares about you and he has forgiven you and he will never, ever hold that sin against you again. And if you're a man here and you have coaxed or persuaded or strong-armed your girlfriend at the time or wife into having an abortion and you have sought forgiveness through the crosswork of Jesus, you need to know, you are forgiven this morning. God loves you and he delights in you and he will never ever hold that sin against you again. God cares about preborn children. From conception, they bear his image and they are indeed fully persons. He also cares that we experience and delight in the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. May God cause it to be so. Let's pray.